Banks crashing on 10th anniversary of Cyprus bail-in. Here we go again. And Australia's Nazi problem goes all the way to the top. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 23rd of March 2023. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about the banks coming down around our ears and it won't be stopping anytime soon. So um, don't believe it. Some of the media are already starting to suggest that, that it's all back to normal. No siree. And secondly, we'll discuss uh, Australia's Nazi problem. We're not going to be talking about... Um, these Nazis that have been showing up at various meetings and on the steps of Parliament House in Melbourne, but something way more serious, in fact, when we get to that. Now, don't forget to hit the like button. If you get something out of the show, subscribe and uh, you'll get updated of other shows and other content that we put out. And if you can share it as widely as you can, put a comment below. That all helps get the word out. Um, And for those who see the importance of what we're doing, please consider a donation. You can see the links for that below as well. That's how we keep uh, being able to do this. Uh, Now, just an announcement before we get into the main topic of the day. Uh, Don't forget, and for our regular viewers, of course, you'll be very familiar with the subject. If not, you can look at the link below. We'll put a link to our page of our campaign um, to get a postal bank because of the collapse of banks all over the country. I mean, not the actual bank collapse in this case, but the shutting down of bank branches. We'll get to the bank collapses later. But in the meantime, um, if you can find a bank, you're lucky these days, and therefore we need to have real competition for the banks. And there's a committee inquiry going on through the Regional Rural Affairs and Transport Committee um, to consider why the big banks that are getting heavily subsidised by government, by the taxpayer, by you, are just shutting down everywhere uh, and looking at alternatives such as a postal bank. So you've got until, I think, next Friday, the 31st of March, to make your submission, even if it's just a one-line email to the committee um, protesting about the difficulty uh, that bank closures have caused, whether you're in a regional area, which is specifically what this inquiry is about, or even if you're in a city, because it's really much, much broader um, than just being in the regions. So, yeah, follow the link below and make your submission ASAP as soon as you get off this, then you won't forget. Now, first topic, banks crashing on 10th anniversary of Cyprus bail-in. Here we go again. Probably shouldn't even have the question mark there. Hmm. <laughs> it's pretty, yep. pretty certain because ever since the global financial crisis, it's been obvious that everything that was done to prop up the financial system was going to make matters much, much worse, mm. and it was just a matter of time. Yeah, someone back in about 2011 called it the banking system a, a dinosaur on life support. Right? Yeah. It's extinct, but you're keeping it alive artificially at great expense for no good reason. Exactly, and at the lo- expense of the lives of, and livelihoods of a lot of people, and it's getting worse by the day. Um, so, of course, last week we didn't get to talk about this because other topics overshadowed um, in terms of the war danger. <laughs> So we want to go into a little bit of detail this week about what's been occurring over the last um, couple of weeks or so. 
Uh, of course, you had three banks in the United States that collapsed and a fourth one, which is on the verge of collapse. We'll go through the details in a moment. We've had also Credit Suisse, mm-hmm. huge uh, globally systemically important bank, which is acknowledged that in that case it would have major implications if it collapsed. So it was on the verge of that and there was a takeover of it to prevent a global meltdown. But what we're also going to talk about is um, in addition to those four US banks in trouble, there's another 186 that are in the same boat. So we'll come to that in a moment. Um, so as I said, yeah, don't believe the pronouncement, which I heard someone saying in the news, in some news shows yesterday, oh, you know, markets have stabilised, it's all back to normal. Of course, you've had the US Federal Reserve that just raised their rates by a quarter of a percent mm. and the, US, uh, the European Central Bank had done um, similarly, they raised them by a half of a percent. So, oh, you know, if they're willing to keep raising rates, they mustn't be too worried about a a further um, crisis, etc. But of course, this is happening, uh, Richard, on the anniversary of the first use of bail-in mm. in Cyprus in 2013. And we'll put up a press release that we put out in on the 26th of March 2013, which was titled The Cyprus Option or Glass-Steagall. And we warned from that point and um, escalated our warnings in April that bail-in, which no one had heard of at that point, was coming to Australia. And by the 15th of April, uh, we had identified that the Financial Stability Board, which is run out of the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, had actually stated in writing in a report that bail-in was, quote-unquote, in train in Australia, Um, albeit, you know, all of the top all of the politicians that we um, were able to confront on this denied the existence Mm. of any type of bail-in legislation and still do in Mm. reality. Some of them because they actually didn't know. Well, that's right at the time. Because that's the problem with this parliamentary system we've got. One of the problems, big ones, is that mostly they don't even get to read or not are expected not to read the bills they vote on. They don't actually know what's in them. They just get told by the parties, we're voting this way, okay. Mm. So, so what bail-in does is that when banks are on the verge of collapse, um, they are kept going, kept in business by confiscating some proportion of uh, deposits, certain types of bonds. There's some bonds called hybrid bonds or bail-in bonds that will 100% get turned into equity um, and deposits usually would get confiscated or a certain amount of them would get confiscated over a certain amount which is guaranteed by government's Um, But this uh, legislation came up in Australia five years ago. In fact, the anniversary of Mm. that five-year anniversary was just um, on Valentine's Day this year. So in 2018, um, our legislation came up and it passed. And famously, there were eight people in the chamber, went through on the voices, Mm. no debate. It was done um, surreptitiously, so the government didn't have to contend with any hard questions on this. There were people in the parliament that would have asked mm. hard questions. The government and the opposition, because they were both in on it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and what it did, it doesn't explicitly say we can take your savings, but there's a loophole in there so big you could drive a truck through it. Mm. That a truck says, full of your money. It talks about, yeah, it talks about the kinds of instruments that can be bailed in. 
and then it has any other instrument which mm. just leaves things wide open. Now, um, One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts has put up an amendment in the past and he's going to put it up again now that all of this is happening um, because the spotlight is on to close that loophole, which is critical. He gave a speech in, on Monday in Parliament noting the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in the US, noting the collapse of Credit Suisse, and he said, I call on the government to categorically rule out a bail-in and properly fund the bank guarantee scheme. Uh, because, of course, that's the other thing that's coming up for wide debate at the moment, particularly in the United States, mm. is that there's not enough money in the coffers to guarantee uh, even the money that is guaranteed by governments, mm. the deposits. And, of course, in the case of the United States... Um, the government said we're going to guarantee all of the deposits, even those that aren't guaranteed. Yeah, which is actually illegal under their, mm. under their Deposit Insurance Act um, over there, the way they did it. There are other mechanisms that they can use to get around these things, but they didn't bother. They just... No. Um, you know, creating new banks and transferring assets and accounts and things. They could, they could have done it that way, but they're just panicked. Yeah, and the reason they panicked, we'll talk go into that in a little bit more detail now, is because... They don't want, I mean, they, they want to guarantee everything because they don't want a much bigger and broader run on the banks because mm. basically they know all the US banks are in the same boat and if, peop, if they didn't guarantee the deposit, people would start getting a bit antsy and start pulling all their money out and that's the last thing they want. But they're not going to prevent it from happening. We're going to get to that point unless real solutions, which we'll talk about later, are brought uh, about. So three, the three US banks that went under are Silvergate Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, and Signature Bank. And then you have First Republic Bank, which is still teetering on the edge. It's being kept alive by a $30 billion infusion from JP Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs. Um, now, the Federal Reserve announced a new bank term funding program. Sounds familiar to Australians because... Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same old kind of bailout mechanism that we've seen through our bank term funding facility here, which just injects more money into the bubble, not into the economy, and continues the problem, makes the problem actually worse. Uh, so that was announced on the 12th of March. That means banks can get one-year-in-length loans against the treasuries and other securities that they hold on their books at the book value of those securities mm. because the, the problem that came about with Silicon Valley Bank came about because the value of treasuries that they're holding and all the US banks are holding treasuries on their books mm. as assets. Yeah, US government bonds for those who don't know. That's right. The value of those, the face value of them has um, plummeted as interest rates have risen. And, of course, interest rates are rising because the Fed and co are fighting inflation. So they're squeezing the economy, creating, deliberately in their own words, creating a recession. And that has an impact. It has an impact on the businesses, whether they be the high-tech companies that were invested in this Silicon Valley Bank or anyone else. Mm. And what had come to pass with Silicon Valley Bank is that the customers being squeezed by 
high interest rates were running down their capital, so the deposit base of this bank was being rapidly depleted and they had to start selling these treasury bonds at a low price. The book valuation was quite high because they keep them valued at that price, but then when they go to sell them, they have to do what they call market to market. Marking to market, yeah. The, if you, you know, realising realizing you're going, selling them for what people are actually willing yeah, to pay for them. Exactly, yeah. Because you can have, you know, just in everyday life, something that you think is worth a lot of money, mm. like a car. Um, when, um, you know, a good friend of ours left, uh, fled Iraq during the Iraq war, which is a relevant example at the moment, in 1991, um, people were just leaving cars by the side of the mm. road and looking for donkeys because, you know, that car might be a Mercedes-Benz worth mm. 50 grand or something. It was worthless to them because they couldn't get anywhere. There's no petrol. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, you, you can't drive a Mercedes saloon car over the mountain. <laughs> exactly. So the real value of those bonds is what these banks had to take, and so they had ended up with a huge hole in their balance sheet, and you know a number mm. of them went. Um, the problem is, there's a report that just came out, and we've written about this in our Australian. Rep- alert service this week. It's written by a number of economists and financial experts. It's called Monetary Tightening and US Bank Fragility in 2023, Mark to Market Losses and Uninsured Depositors Depositor Runs. This came out on the 13th of March and it warns that there's 186 banks in the same situation as Silicon Valley Bank and that in fact the assets of the US banking system are $2 trillion less than their book value for most banks individually, their assets are worth something like 10 to 20% less than what they're marked as. Mm. And just to quote that report, which gives you a sense of what the US is facing, uh, even if only half of uninsured depositors decide to withdraw, almost 190 banks are at potential risk of impairment to insured depositors with potentially $300 billion of insured deposits at risk. If insured deposit withdrawals cause even small fire sales, substantially more banks are at risk. Yeah, it becomes a, it becomes a self-feeding process. It, it's, what's unusual about the Silicon Valley Bank, just a brief technical explanation, banks usually go under because they're, you know, they're, they're bad loans, right? They're overextended or they've taken on too much risk. This, this bank, Silicon Valley Bank, hadn't even, it had loaned out less than its mm. deposit base. Only a, a bit over a third, I think, off the top of my head, of, of its deposit base was actually on loan to anybody. Mm. Um, the problem was, yeah, they had a, a run on deposits that they had to cover by selling these bonds. That, uh, and these are all bonds from whatever, you know, they've only... The U.S. Federal Reserve, like Australia's Reserve Bank, has only just started raising interest rates from near zero just recently, and so there's no secondary market for these bonds anymore. Mm. Um, because why would anyone go and spend good money? I mean, there's a market, but the values crashed. Mm. Uh, because why would anyone go and put their money into that when they could go and get new bonds on issue at five times or whatever it is the interest rate now? Mm. So, um, so that's what marking these things. That's what that, that that's why these losses are happening on these U.S. Treasury bonds, even though they're the the, the most secure investment in yeah. the global system in terms of making their their coupon their 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 face value is what it is, uh, but their secondary market value, you know, the yields on them when you sell them is just gone. 
And mind you, this anything that happens in the US Treasury bond market has huge implications for the whole world because the US debt market underpins the entire US-based global financial system. And essentially, since the end of Bretton Woods, when um, Nixon took the US dollar off the gold reserve standard, um, the entire US dollar-based system became debased and uh, essentially the they continued to put out new treasuries as they regularly do, but how much of this debt went into increased productivity or building mm. the nation? Um, you know, debt's not a problem if you're doing something useful with it, but basically you've got this split between the real economy and the finance and the money, and this is something that uh, the Chinese actually did a study after the 2008 crisis. They compared this crisis, the 2008 one, to the 1929 crash and the Great Depression, and they identified similarities, but they said the key thing is this split between money, which is zooming upward, and the real economy, which is essentially collapsing. Uh, and so in terms of the US Treasury market dysfunction and the way it's been increasing, uh, this has been, particularly since 2008, something that's been getting worse and worse. Uh, and in fact, an article uh, in the Financial Times on the 18th of March acknowledged this. It was called The Tumult in Treasuries Are Hedge Funds Partly to Blame? And in fact, they're a little bit late coming to the party. We wrote about um, the increasing involvement of hedge funds uh, in trading treasuries and repo markets, which are short-term liquidity markets, which use tr treasuries as collateral, Hedge funds have been given an increasing role in this market, sort of a semi-official role working with the Fed. And we wrote about that in the alert service in 2021. But there's also been a series of warnings um, just last year, actually. The Bank for International Settlements in December 2022 reported about the huge, what they called unseen dollar borrowing that's going on around the world, which is referring to off-balance sheet derivatives, which are gambling contracts outside of America, which are worth more than all the treasuries, repos and commercial paper combined. So they were putting out the red alert on that. In October 2022, the Federal Reserve put out its financial stability report, which they stated that they were worried about a loss of liquidity in the US Treasury market and a potential foreign sell-off of treasuries and concerns over whether the treasury market would continue to function in that, if that happened. Uh, the Fed, the Treasury and the White House began at that time working on a plan for adverse scenarios, very similar to what we've just seen. And in fact, one of the proposals was for a bond buying program, which is exactly what they set up. So this was not mm. unforeseen. They knew this was coming and they were ready for it. Yeah, buying, Just, buying up bonds like the, like the Australian Reserve Bank did yep. here with the term funding facility you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is the body that guarantees the deposits and so forth and assesses the banks to be guaranteed in that way, uh, on the 9th November 2022 had a webcast where they openly discussed the bail-in process that might have to occur if this trouble did 
in fact eventuate and Ellen Brown had a very good article about this which is available online and we published in the Australian Alert Service, one of our collaborators in America uh, and you know a very big advocate of public banking solutions and that in that webcast there was a big discussion about whether the public should be warned about the prospect mm. that they could have bonds and deposits bailed in and the former chairman, former vice chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, Donald Cohn, said it's important that people understand they can be bailed in, but you don't want a huge run on the institution. Yeah, and uh, and Alan Brown made the point that, you know, it sounds like the usual banks looking out for each other and the system protect, but he, she said this is actually a legitimate concern. I mean, the whole, the banking system runs on confidence, mm. right? Banks are, even when they running properly and well regulated they're leveraged you know conservatively eight to ten times their deposit base and so if you have a run on deposits you know if you cause a run on deposits it's like it's like that old line about shouting fire in a crowded mm. theater right mm. you know if the theater is actually on fire you've got to warn people yeah well absolutely they've got to get out but if you just jump up and start yelling fire everyone else jumps up heads for the exit mm. at once crushes it's each crushed. other on the way out and still burns to death anyway mm. and so um you do unusually kind of feel sorry for these guys in the administrative well, functions in America because yeah. they've got to tread this very fine line. But it just goes to show that bail-in is no solution. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a solution at all. They have to think a little bit outside the square here and, you know, we'll come to those solutions in a moment because actual real solutions, workable solutions, won't cause that kind of problem that mm, telling people about or people getting wind of bail-in yeah, would cause. Quite the opposite. Um, now... At the IMF and the World Bank at the same time with these warnings regarding Treasury bonds, um, we're also warning about the implications of increasing Federal Reserve interest rates or US interest rates for emerging markets. And in fact, as early as January 2022, there were um, uh, warnings that you know countries had better prepare the bail-in plans there was a blog that was put out by the IMF, emerging economies must prepare for Fed policy tightening, um, saying that basically this could rattle financial markets and, quote, weaker banks and non-bank lenders may face solvency concerns if financing becomes difficult. Resolution regimes, which is another name for bail-in, should be readied. But it wasn't just restricted, as we can see, to emerging or developing country mm. markets. It's is the developed countries themselves as well. Um, so, yeah, none of this was unforeseen and we've said it as well. Um, we know what's coming. We need to implement the solutions. Now, just before we get to those solutions, just a couple of words on Credit Suisse because, as we mentioned at the start, Credit Suisse is a globally significant bank that if it were to collapse, because the Bank for International Settlements has these rankings of banks... Mm. And some of them are GCIFIs, Globally mm. Significant Financial Institutions. And the big concern is that they would trigger um, contagion through mm. the derivatives bubbles, which are highly interlinked and worth probably a couple of quadrillion dollars globally and would bring down the whole financial system in its wake. Yeah, the, the other shoe dropping from, from back in 2007 8. Mm. Um, same thing, only bigger and worse because the system's got so much bigger in the meantime and there's all this fake money floating around out there. Um, and it's like the oil in your engine. You, know, you drain that out and leave it turning over in the meantime, 
well, nothing's greasing the gears anymore and it all mm. just seizes up and that's what happened in 2008 and it's... Yep, and they've had to do, make the same reactions um, because apart from the... There was an operation over the weekend to organise Union Bank of Switzerland to buy up Credit Suisse for $2 billion. There was a $54 billion loan to UBS to help them to buy it for $2 billion, um, plus a $162 billion loan to Credit Suisse, which was on top of a previous $54 billion injection, which on its own was already described as the biggest bailout in Swiss history. But all of this was fast-tracked over the weekend. They were, they're meant to take six weeks to consult shareholders. Mm. Didn't do any of that just had meetings between the US, UK and Swiss central banks and financial regulators, yep. did it all overnight. And then so leaked, it to the, leaked it to the media to make it a fait accompli because the panic would be bigger if they didn't, if mm. it didn't then go ahead than, yeah. than the consternation they caused by doing, what, doing exactly. it the way that they did it. And they had to have it, you know, ready to go by before the markets in Asia opened on the Monday morning. So they had a deadline. And then on Monday morning, six central banks announced coordinated daily repo operations for liquidity, uh, for US dollar liquidity specifically, using new US dollar swap lines, which is the same thing they had to do after 2008 to make sure European and other banks had enough US dollars at their disposal um, when, you know, in 2008 the mm. markets all froze up. Um, as you were alluding to, they had to take those kinds of uh, drastic measures. So let's talk about the solutions because this has been coming up. We've talked a lot uh, in the history of our organisation about Glass-Steagall. Actually, give a quick idea of what it is, Richard, mm. for people who are new to the concept. Okay, so this is, this is the name that was given because of the two gentlemen who introduced it um, in the US Congress in 1933 of the Banking Act that ended the conditions that had caused the Great Depression. These all-in-one banks that are gambling with deposits and doing all the things that our banks do now because um, we don't have that kind of separation mm. here. And neither, neither does the United States anymore because they repealed it in 1999. Mm. But for the 66 years in between, there was only banks that were exempted from that for whatever reason um, that blew up. There were no systemic financial crises because it keeps speculative investment, uh, and, you know, the derivatives market is one thing, but sp speculative finance has its place, what they call venture capital, you know, or merchant banking, the British used to call it. Mm. People might be familiar with that term. You know, if there's a high-risk business endeavour that somebody says, hey, I've got this great idea, if it comes off, we're going to make a packet, if, you're, if you've got money to spare and you put it in that, well, good, that's how capitalism is supposed to work, right? Mm. Um, but the issue is that without that Glass-Steagall standard, uh, when that does go bad, the banks can then turn around and do turn around to the government and say, hey, you can't afford to let us go. We're too big to fail. Mm -hmm. That was the phrase that came to be used in, after the GFC, um, during and after. Uh, because, yeah, they're systemically, they've, they've become systemically important. Mm. Um, and they're also holding great swaths of people's deposits and the, and the markers of all these businesses that have... Yeah, you know, the real economy that have that are that are in debt to them, and all of that blows up along with the speculation, which has gotten, as you said earlier, completely disconnected from any uh, anything to do with the real economy now, except when it goes bad, mm. for the reasons that I've just stated. Yeah, so stated. we have to we have to bring that separation back in, so that 
any bank that takes deposits and just does regular boring retail banking activity mm. is insulated from any of that risk. Mm. Firewalled, as yeah, they say. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and this discussion has come up both in Switzerland and in the US, not surprisingly, because of these crises. So in Switzerland, the discussion centred around protecting depositors, mortgages and small businesses. Uh, a Swiss MP, Benjamin Fisher, called for Glass-Steagall legislation explicitly to separate investment and commercial banking. He tweeted that a proposal for a Glass-Steagall law in Switzerland called Trendbanken um, was voted down 10 years ago. He said, we missed the chance for a stable bank separation system. Uh, there's also support being registered over there from members, MPs of, from the Greens Party, academics, the media... Um, what the economics editor of the Berner Zeitung, Peter Burkhardt, had a call for bank separation. Um, so it's getting quite a bit of discussion and circulation as a concept. And in the US um, as well, Democratic Senator Maria Cantwell asked um, Tre Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen about Glass-Steagall. And I'll, I'll play the video of this. It's just a minute or so. What about Glass-Steagall? I've been a big supporter of Glass-Steagall. And when you come to this moment, and I keep thinking, why did we ever allow us to have the commingling of separation of commercial and investment banking? It seems to me that continuing to protect depositors and having a system where people can take risk and if they suffer loss, okay. But, but that's not what we have. We have such a commingled system now. What do you think about relooking at Glass-Steagall? Now, I'm not asking for the Treasury Secretary to make big news here. I'm really just asking if you thought the same situation would have occurred the way it occurred if we had not in 2000 gotten rid of Glass-Steagall. You know, we're very focused right now on stabilizing the banking system and shoring up confidence, and I think there will be um, plenty of time it will be appropriate to look at what happened and consider whether or not regulatory or supervisory changes are necessary and look forward to working with you in discussing what happened and what what response is appropriate. But for now, I would like to, I would like to see um, confidence restored in the soundness of American Thank banks. And then after she um, finished that exchange, so, you know, obviously Yellen wasn't going, yeah, yeah, let's do it. But she, it's interesting that she didn't reject it and rule it out mm -hmm. out of hand. And the chair, the discussion went on a little longer um, and... Um, Cantwell was talking a bit about how, you know, that, like you were saying, there is a need for capital and to take risks, but we have to protect mm. the vital things that keep our economy going day to day. The chair, when he cut her off, actually said he agreed with Cantwell on that, which is also interesting. Republican uh, Senator Josh, Josh Hawley, who's quite high profile, he also told HuffPost, we used to separate commercial banks and investment banks and, you know, the FDIC only oversaw and the guarantee was only for commercial banks. I think we need to bring that rule back. We're going to have three banks in this country, he, he said, you know, basically because we're going to concentrate everything mm. down because all the rest are going to collapse. Welcome to our world. And, and depositors are going to pull out of the smaller banks and put the money in the ones that are too big to fail because they think they're the ones that will be kept going. So he said, I think that's terrible, terrible, terrible. 
uh, and Robert Reich, ex-Secretary of Labor, he said the Glass-Steagall Act was the law of the land until 1999. It prohibited banks from making profits off of the deposits entrusted to them. I say bring it back. Uh, likewise, Paul Craig Roberts, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury under the Reagan administration, uh, he wrote an article and did an interview warning that worse is to come because the five largest US banks hold trillions upon trillions of derivatives contracts, but their capital's only in the billions. Mm. And he also traced the troubles back to 1999 when Glass-Steagall was taken off the books yeah. by well, bankers. I- Although just to sort of, just to correct or clarify, Mr. Reich, there, uh, it's not that banks don't make profits from depositors. I mean, banks are never not profitable, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. Yeah. But but speculative profits is the issue here, and the holding of depositors and the real economy to ransom when it goes bad. Yeah, taking their deposits and speculating with it to make money for themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in a completely. And then leaving everyone else holding the can. That exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And not even people depositors not even being aware of that going on. Um, so, I mean, again, this really puts the importance on um, this inquiry that's going on and the fact that we need to have a government-owned and run bank, a public bank, um, that can keep people safe because that's mm. probably the only assurance that people would accept today that their deposits won't get bailed in um, and you know, that they will have somewhere safe in a crisis. Yeah, and there's no specific fallout yet in Australia um, over this, but the, uh, that, that has been made public at least. Uh, mm. but, the, but the regulators are getting very worried about it. There's articles daily in the Australian Financial Review about how they're trying to figure out what the potential exposure of Australian banks are. But the trouble is our system's set up so badly on purpose, mm. the regulatory system, that they don't actually seem to be able to tell who's, who owes what to who and what the potential uh, contagion is here. Uh, one thing that has happened that's been reported is that the uh, convertible bonds, the, uh, the bail-in bonds, what they call hybrid securities, that are designed to be, it's written in the contracts, that they get written off mm. or, or um, converted into stock in the event the bank needs recapitalising. Uh, people are... There's brokers reporting that that people are dumping these things. Uh, one of them said uh, all their, the average across all of their clients was they dumped 10% of Australian bank hybrid mm. bonds um, the day the market opened after the mm. SVB collapse. So, mm. and that's their that's their unquestionably strong right and additional yeah. tier one capital. And so because that all did get written off in terms of Credit Suisse about 17. Yeah billion dollars worth of those hybrid bonds. Uh, so no no surprise there that people are going to get out of them um, and it's not going to function in the way they might have hoped. But anyway, we'll stop there and we'll move on to our next topic. Australia's Nazi problem goes all the way to the top and we're not talking, as I mentioned earlier, about uh, a number of these incidents where supposed neo-Nazis are on the street here mm. in Victoria doing the Hitler salute at the Parliament House or at a, a political meeting in New South Wales that just occurred. That's one thing. But this is actually much more serious. Um, but just to... And we're talking about um, the the influence that people that are supporting the regime in Ukraine have on uh, members of parliament, even 
prime ministers in this country. But I just want to preface it by uh, acknowledging, as our, the lead of our Australian Alert Service did this week, and you can contact us for a copy of the alert. We'll send you a complimentary cop copy if you haven't seen one before, or you can subscribe. Um, the 20th anniversary of the Iraq invasion and, you know, the lies in particular that led us into that invasion, what Paul Keating did last week, which the, we did the whole show about and which, you know, his, um, the YouTube version of his presentation when I looked on Wednesday had just under 200,000 views, just stunning, you know, because he's taking on the same lies today that are leading us into World War III, yep. which would be something far more horrific, obviously, than what we saw in Iraq. Um, and, you know, Russia and China are the big, big bad, bad bogeymen in all of this, in this whole picture. China and Russia um, resisted the sequence of regime change operations. And again, we wrote about it, that in the alert a few weeks ago, uh, Iraq, Libya, Syria. I mean, remember in um, September 2015 when Putin spoke at the UNGA, the UN General Assembly, and because ISIS, of course, had risen by um, the Anglo-American support for terrorist jihadi movements, mm. created ISIS, the worst nightmare. And Putin said at that point, he said, do you realise what you have done? You know, and, and so Russia and China all along, I mean, there were some times when they were lied into supporting certain actions, but they resisted mm. it. Uh, and then they saw with Ukraine the same kind of an operation was unfolding in front of their eyes, right on Russia's border, targeted at Russia, in fact, for destabilisation. Um, and then, of course, Russia and China themselves in US, UK and associated Australian security and defence doctrines were labelled as the greatest threats, as, you know, competitors, not as collaborators. So they were increasingly thrust into this situation where they had to react and they have begun pushing for a new security framework, a new economic architecture. The meeting that's just been held this week by President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in Moscow uh, is critical in this regard with the aim of the visit being peace in Ukraine and what they called coordination for a new era. Um, and they've already been in that collaboration with the BRICS countries, which includes Brazil, Russia, India, uh, and as well as China and South Africa. Um, they're undoing the achievements of the regime change wars. I mean, China uh, signed a oil for reconstruction agreement with Iraq in 2019 to rebuild the country with the profits of the oil that China's buying. There's cooperation to rebuild Afghanistan when the Anglo-Americans left, just pulled out and left it to its own devices. Well, and then stole all its currency reserves. That's right. And so China and Russia and the neighbouring countries, again, we've written about this a lot in the alert, have intervened to look at building the infrastructure, the rail projects. Uh, it's, it's a stunning picture that is going ahead. In February, China announced its global security initiative and out of that came the 12-point Ukraine peace proposal. Um, just shortly thereafter, China brokered this stunning deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran to resume relations based on the urgent need for economic reconstruction in the region. 
days later, the Syrian president, Bashar Assad, went to Moscow to sign deals for reconstruction of Syria. He went on to the United uh, Arab Emirates to talk economic cooperation and reintegration of Syria into the Arab community. Um, Xi Jinping is hopefully going to have a phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, uh, who is already being hammered for not having immediately rejected out of hand China's peace proposal. Mm. And in fact, uh, John Kirby, National Security um, Council advisor to the US government, he said, if coming out of this meeting between Xi and Putin, there's some sort of call for a ceasefire, well, that's just going to be unacceptable unacceptable because all that's going to do is ratify Russia's conquest to date. And worth noting there that this, the constant refrain since all of this, since before this, what Russia calls its special military operation in Ukraine, even started just over a year ago, uh, has been that only, only China can bring Russia to the table. China's got to intervene. China's got to do this. This is all China's fault for, mm-hmm. not, for not interceding with the Russians. And so then they did, and it's like, oh, why would we trust the Chinese? This is all a ploy. This yeah. is the blah, blah, blah. So pick one, right? That's right. But, you know, it's very clear to see from those comments from John Kirby who, you know, doesn't want to stop war, who doesn't want peace. It's not in their interests. Now, unfortunately, and this is where we'll get to the meat of the topic, uh, our Prime Minister, Albanese, right now is standing on the side of war. And the question we are raising in this segment and the article that you've written for the Alert Service this week, Richard, is who is influencing Mr Albanese? And I guess we'll start with this video clip um, of Prime Minister Albanese admitting that. This is from February 2022. Yeah, so then opposition leader Albanese. And again, this is before the military operation, before the Russian incursion began. Yeah, and there's also, we'll also just note that uh, he was also in contact with um, the Prime Minister at that time, Scott mm. Morrison. So basically he'd been given a platform, this fellow, uh, who you'll hear about in a moment. His name is uh, uh, Stefan... Yeah, Stefan <laughs> Romanov. That's right, I couldn't see it for a moment. Um, he's been given a platform and the ears not only of... Prime Ministers and MPs, but all kinds of media and advisory groups. Uh, and we'll go through in a moment why his assessment uh, is leading us into World War Three. But watch this clip. Last Friday, I met with the chairman of the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organisations, Stefan Romanyu, and other Ukrainian community leaders in Melbourne. And I indicated to them Labor's clear position of solidarity with the people of the Ukraine and our absolute rejection of any Russian military action that violates Ukraine's sovereignty and its independence. Labor stands with the people of Ukraine and all Ukrainian Australians at this difficult time. If Russia continues down the path of aggression, it will be attacking one of the core principles of the post-World War II order, which is that all UN members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. This is a simple, clear principle. Mr Putin must understand that it is not in the long-term interests of the Russian people to continue down this path. The era of spheres of influence and other such pseudo-imperial constructs has been consigned to the dustbin of history. 
Australia should unite with our allies and friends in sending the strongest of messages that Russia needs to back off and it needs to back off right now. Okay, so uh, tell us who this guy is. I mean, um, Albanese didn't really give the background that people need Hmm. to be aware of. No, well, it's kind of blacked out of the media in most of the Western world. So this guy's the head or, or co-chair of several Ukrainian community organisations that seem seemingly legitimate ones, right? What they never tell you is that he's also, from 2009 until, the, until December of last year, he was the head of the, an, an international uh, Ukrainian militant group mm. called the uh, OUNB, Organisation of Ukrainian Nationalists, of Bandera, um, Stepan Bandera was the leader of it um, in the World War II period. Um, <clears throat> these were the people who, th- these are the same ideology as the Nazis. Mm. Blood and soil, you know, Lebensraum, exterminate all the inferior races, which by their definition includes their literal cousins, the Russians. They're the, everyone's the enemy who isn't your exact ethnic, ethno-cultural grouping. Mm. Permanent warfare is the natural state of mankind. This is their ideology, right? Survival of the fittest, social Darwinism, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Nazi. Nazis. Um, and they collaborated, this organisation, Bandera personally, with the actual Nazis um, and with British intelligence before, the wor- before World War II uh, and worked with the German, worked for the Germans mm. during the war um, and committed the most bloodthirsty atrocities you've ever heard of against Polish, Jewish, Russian civilians in what they claimed as their you know, single ethno state of Ukraine. Mm. Uh, and, of course, they were smashed, I should say, because it comes up a lot. They overreached, Bandera and his close associates uh, overreached their authority, claimed a republic when they were supposed to be a client state of, you know, just a subsidiary of, of the Nazi, the German Nazis, who of course would have eventually disposed of them probably anyway, because they were, they were, they were an inferior race so far as the Germans were concerned. Um, but, uh, and he was arrested along with several others and taken to Berlin. Um, but he continued to plan operations, just kept in like a protective custody, administrative detention, continued to plan operations, continued to run the the um, war in coordination with German intelligence. His men stayed active throughout the war um, and were supplied with weapons and money and air support by the German military the entire time. So they never fought the Germans like they claim in World War II. Maybe the odd scrap here and there, squabbles over internal power struggles and so on. But... um, you know, for, all, for any practical purpose, no. They did not fight both the Soviets and the Nazis. Um, after the war, they, were, they went underground. Um, and something that's been officially admitted by Australia's intelligence agencies is that, yeah, they and the British and the Americans recruited known Nazis, Nazi collaborators from all over Eastern Europe, including Ukraine, mm. um, to use as agents during the Cold War. They seeded them. Some were stay-behind underground operations, like this OUNB became in... Mm. Or its co-thinkers, its, some of its members became in, in Ukraine under various names for the entire Cold War period. Um, but the official leadership structure of the organisation 
was uh, amongst the diaspora communities. Yeah, this is this is the influence. This this mm. guy met with because uh, uh, remember everybody was carping, harping on about an imminent Russian invasion yep. uh, for months, long before anything actually happened. Uh, and this guy was meeting with Scott Morrison. Is on the phone to him. He's, he's met with Albanese as opposition leader and continued to when he became PM. Uh, and this uh, he and his organisation were personally involved. Mm. Um, present at the coup that overthrew the US and EU-backed coup that overthrew the government of Ukraine in 2014 and started this whole civil war in the first place. Yeah, and I just wanted to draw out that point a little bit because what you said in the article is that um, the so there was this effort to have Ukraine join an association agreement with mm. Europe and it was at the end of 2013 that this was you know, coming up. Yeah, but, through the latter half of 2013. But in early 2013, these groups, these neo-Nazi groups, were already, they had their plans in place to try to throw overthrow any government that tried to stop this mm. association agreement, which would bring also Ukraine into NATO and military arrangements Yeah, well, open to, the door for that, yeah, um, which has long been on the agenda, uh, on, on NATO's agenda. Um, but, yeah, so they were... Uh, setting up to force a situation where the government... Because the, the, the parliament uh, ratified this agreement under a lot of political pressure. And the president, uh, Yanukovych, at the time, he didn't actually scrap it like they say. He just mm. he deferred signing it, mm. officially signing it into, into effect, pending a review of its effects on, the, on their open market access to Belarus and Russia, their, mm-hmm. their major economic partners, their former... Uh, yeah, they were all former constituent states of the Soviet Union uh, because that's, that, that, that's their bread and butter, mm-hmm. almost literally. Uh, their economy would collapse without that and has collapsed without that despite all the money and everything that's been poured in from the, from the West in the meantime. So all he actually did was say, well, I won't sign this yet because we need to see what effect it's going to have so we can prepare for that. This guy was not pro-Russian, like they say. Um, He's now in asylum in Russia because they offered him asylum and asylum, and he was going to be killed by these radicals. Um, but yeah, so they they created this situation. Um, these these networks were reactivated once inside Ukraine, uh, and and began to they began to rehabilitate these uh, persona non grata during the during the Cold War. These these Nazi collaborators, Bandera and others, uh, you know. Uh, recast them as hero national heroes mm. as soon as from 1991 onwards and particularly since the color revolution in 2004 the orange revolution where these western puppets were put in charge mm. um, and so uh yeah they the the AUNB through front organizations and its youth groups and so on they they started these petition this big petition for for the euro integration um uh Movement. They they led the first marches uh, uh, on Kiev, uh, starting a month before the actual protests, so called the, the the coup process was activated. This was all they did all the preliminary work, and they've been doing this at the behest of you know for their own agenda, but with the backing and the support from the Western intelligence agencies, including Australia's, ever since. So when this guy. Um, you know, 
wouldn't want to give the impression that this is some guy who's just some silver-tongued devil getting in the ear of, the, of our impressionable politicians. This is the tool of the Western political intelligence establishment, yeah. which also means the financial establishment, mm. that are, as we've seen, particularly with the British throughout the history, the British Empire, uh, and you mentioned the groups that became Al-Qaeda and then ISIS earlier, mm. they will go to wherever they want to destabilise things and cause trouble. They'll find the biggest radicals, the craziest nut jobs of any political or religious persuasion, mm. and they'll give them guns, money and training and set them loose. And that's we'll, what they did here. We'll put up this headline that just came out in the papers today or yesterday about this Ukrainian, <laughs> uh, sorry, Australian guy who's heading over to Ukraine now. I mm. forget his name, but, um, you know, this is an example of, um, you know, they've apparently tried to stop this guy going over there to fight with Ukrainians to kill Russians before mm. and now he's made it. Yeah, so that's kind of creating a bit of cognitive dissonance for the exactly. there's no Nazis in Ukraine crowd. Yeah. Because, you know, some people have gone to gone all the other way and say, oh, well, all the, Nazi, all the Ukrainians are Nazis. No. Mm. Just like only a small minority of the Germans were actual Nazis mm. and, yeah. you know, people who thought that way. But they're in charge because of who put them in charge, yeah. right? Uh, and so they've got to reconcile that now um, with how neo-Nazism and far-right, whatever that means now, is, uh, is the biggest threat in Australia, according to ASIO, and yet we're supporting the exact same people in Ukraine, mm. the, same, the same ideologies, but who have actually put it into practice on the large scale. Yeah. And now these guys from here, you know, I mean, a lot of them, I dare say, aren't that bright to begin with, but you can understand why they would wonder why, given... The Australian government is supporting their co-thinkers in Ukraine. They should get in trouble for going and helping them kill yeah, Russians. that's right. Right? So it's, it's uh, as bad as the situation is, it's also darkly mm. amusing in watching these people try to justify this in their heads. Mm. So the bottom line is, Elbow, don't take advice from the head until late last year of an outright Nazi outfit. Listen to Paul Keating, a fellow, you know, who's a legend in your own party, now, I'll also just note that there were really excellent um, rallies for peace around the country. We can put up some footage um, from the Melbourne rally on Saturday and there was events on Sunday. So there's a building movement against the war, against AUKUS, against all this nonsense that's going to lead us into World War III. And just a plug also um, before we end for the John Lander, the, his latest interview with Robert Barwick on Citizens Insight absolutely um, critical to watch that as well and circulate as widely as possible. Um, we've got to get the truth to counteract these lies, which was the theme of that rally on Saturday, into the minds of our politicians. Mm. That got no coverage at all from the media because no. a group of Nazi sympathisers just happened to rock up at an event they weren't invited to on the steps of Parliament the same day. So Call me a conspiracy that. theorist, but given <laughs> the history I just went through, I find that kind of suspicious. <laughs> yep. But, yeah, we got to get into these politicians' ears because we can have as big of an impact as these guys on the other side and more because we have truth on our side and the reality is all coming to pass now. The chickens are coming home to roost. You see that on the financial front. So contact us for more information, get involved, and don't forget to get your submission done ASAP. Um, it's due on Friday, so... That's all we've got time for. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks for tuning in and see you again next week.
authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.